So, just by way of review, uh, we talked last week about how to experience the peace of God. We already know that if we're believers, we have peace with God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. But that peace of God that surpasses comprehension, how do we get that? And we came down with what the Word of God actually says to us by offering thankful prayer. When I say prayer, in your mind, you should think dependence, because that's exactly what it is. This, this lay it all on Jesus. You know, that's not just a song. And I, I, I know because I've laid it all on Jesus numerous times. It takes me a while to get there sometimes, you know, how we fight our own battles and, you know, think that we can handle it until we completely are, you know, devastated. Then we finally turn to Jesus, and of course, he picks it up and carries it for us, and we just marvel. And I just think of how many believers struggle so badly because they're, it's our pride, right? I mean, that's, that's all it is. It's our pride. We will not release it to Christ. Listen to the words of that song. Listen to what Paul says, offering thankful prayer. You can experience the peace of God that passes comprehension. You see, spiritual stability is experienced through these means that we have. We have peace and we have joy. We have humility and faith and gratitude. Gratitude, so important. The opposite of gratitude is mumbling and grumbling. And when your life is characterized by those spiritual attitudes, which are nothing more than the fruit of the Spirit, you'll be able to experience difficulty and not lose your balance and not get knocked over and toppled. You might get knocked back a little bit, but as in Corinthians it says, not knocked out. Knocked down, but not knocked out. And that is the mark of a mature believer. But Paul's not through. He now reaches, I believe, the climax and the essential key to being spiritually stable. It's really the key to everything. We see it in verse 8. We're in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 4 today. And what I want to talk to you about is putting on a new mind where you think differently about everything. There's a spiritual principle in sanctification that uses the phrase put off and put on. And Paul instructs believers that when dealing with life habits that are sinful, debilitating habits in our lives that are sinful, you need to stop doing what you're doing. But you can't stop there. You also need to replace what you were doing that was wrong, that was sinful, with something that is good and holy and godly. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is a beautiful example of this. He tells the believers at Ephesus to stop lying. Can you believe it? There are actually believers that lied. <laughs> stop lying. And he says, rather, speak the truth in love. So you got the put off, stop lying, and the put on, speak the truth in love. He told them, stop stealing. Well, that's getting a little bit heavy for a church. Okay, if any of you people are stealing, stop it. Right? That's what he was saying. And then he said, rather... Work with your hands so you have something to give to others rather than stealing from them. He says, stop tearing down with your words. Instead, build one another up with your words. And stop being angry. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't become bitter. Instead, be kind and forgiving. So you see that play. There's, there's stopping a negative action, sinful action, and there's a replacing it with a godly action and so forth. 
Colossians 4 teaches the same thing. Paul there says, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and don't lie. And then he says, basically, what you do when you do that is you're putting aside the old man, who you used to be before you were regenerate. And then he says, put on the new self, the new self, whose fruit is seen as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a lifelong process, folks. This is called sanctification. This is what we do. And here's the deal. Somehow or other, Christians may get the ideal, or the idea that, that they're saved and they've kind of struggled with some sin issues, but they go to church on Sunday and everything, but their lives are not being transformed. They kind of pretty much are the same as they were when they first got saved. That is not a biblical picture of a Christian. A Christian, according to the New Testament, is one that is being transformed from glory to glory, ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is how you do it. Well, last week we saw Paul identify the way to deal with anxiety, and, and that was through thankful prayer. And once in that dependent state before God, bringing all of our cares, laying it on Jesus, and we bring it to him with thankful prayer. The promise is, is that the peace of God will guard the mind and guard the heart from that anxiety. That's the context of that promise. And we're so prone to anxiety in this life, what Paul is talking about, perilous times. Yeah, that's a relative term, right? I'm looking forward to meeting Pastor Hannah. I've not met him. But he is a warrior. He's in Gaza Strip right now. You realize that? And he's going to be in this pulpit talking to us about what it's like to minister to those people. You got Christian, just read the stats, the demographics of Germany, will you? Germany is where the Reformation took place. Yeah, it was a long time ago. They've come a long ways from that. I can hardly even turn on a TV in Germany because there's frontal nudity everywhere. It is a completely secularized society. And Christians over there training believers. In Switzerland? Are you kidding me? You know, these are, these are some of the European countries. Should I go over to Croatia? Should I go into Czech Republic? Should I go into the Philippines? And what they're facing, like Pastor Nilo and his crew? People, where do we stand in all of this? Where are we at personally in our lives? That's the challenge, right? Well, what I want to say, Paul introduces the believer to the experience of the peace of God and how to maintain it in these verses. And that is shown by what they think. What they think. I'd like to read to you just uh, these few verses. Verse 8, Finally, brethren which really doesn't mean anything because he said finally in 3.1. That finally is just like, I'm changing a topic here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, that means reputable, whatever is reputable, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul said, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these virtues that Paul talks about and, 
adding them to our lives, how do we do that? What, what are the virtues? And what do they look like when they're lived out in a practical day-to-day experience? Lord, help us to get our arms around these things that we might grow in our sanctification, that we might more clearly reflect the good work that you've begun in us to a lost and dying world all around us, Lord. And that we might be a greater blessing to those who are believers around us, Lord. Thank you for this truth of these verses today that we're going to look into in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. So, first we want to talk about pondering these things. See, the importance of your mind can't be understated. Our minds. There are six spiritual virtues that Paul says we are to use and cultivate and meditate on always. Uh, The tenses of the verb uh, mean that this should be a continuous thing with Christians. Now, I'm going to tell you at the outset, this is super radical to us, but it's like Bible Christianity 101. Okay? Watchman Nee once said it. You've heard me say it before. Most Christians are so subnormal that an ordinary Christian seems extraordinary. Okay? That's kind of like this text today. This is so radical. Wait till you hear what he tells us to think. He actually tells us what to think. I've often spoken from this pulpit about how our culture has chosen the therapeutic course. Okay? Everybody's on a therapeutic approach to life. And what I mean by that is that thinking is out. Feeling is in. We are dominated by our feelings, by our emotions. And everything that is troublesome is not the fault of the individual, but it's somehow related to an external pressure, somebody else. We blame shift in this culture completely. I mean, we're completely given over to it. There's no longer any personal responsibility. Most maladies today are treated with prescribed drugs. And everything centers around how a person feels. Feelings reign supreme. That's what I mean when I say a therapeutic culture. And because feelings are subjective, meaning that they're within the person themselves, there's a natural safeguard against anyone challenging them because they are not feeling what that person is feeling and therefore they have nothing to say. You don't know what I'm experiencing. You don't know what I'm feeling. Have you heard that mantra anywhere? Everywhere? So you can't adjudicate any behavior or thought process or anything. You need to stay far away from that. Who are you to judge me? You don't know what I've gone through. Francis Schaeffer identified this turn to feelings within what he called the new Pentecostalism. Now, I love Francis Schaeffer. If you can pick up anything written by Francis Schaeffer, pick it up and read it. I was sad to see that his little five-volume set which they put in paperback, you can't even get hardback anymore, is now like $115. So sad. It used to be like $59. But get his work. His work is excellent. I find myself in this day and age with all the craziness going on, longing for Francis to see what he would say about this. He didn't even talk about postmodernism. He was before that time. But boy, was he good. Listen to what he says in identifying our therapeutic culture using new Pentecostalism as its backdrop. As we look at the people caught up in the new Pentecostalism, we certainly cannot say that many of them are not Christian. 
Okay, so you don't go there. I'm completely sure that many of them are. But we are impressed with the fact that many have so very little content to their faith. Mark that. Little content to your faith. Everything is experience, emotion, or emotionalism. That's their base. We must, of course, be careful here because we're not saying that there shouldn't be any experience of emotion. There is and there should be emotion in our faith. But neither experience nor emotion is the basis of our faith. The basis of our faith is that certain things are true. He's honing down into his message here. The whole man, including the intellect, is to act upon the fact that certain things are true. That, of course, will lead to an experiential relationship with God, but the basis is content, not experience. This content must be based on the propositional revelation given in Scripture. The propositional revelation given in Scripture. Sentences are written in Scripture. That's proposition, the propositional Okay, content of Scripture. And all of our freedoms and leadership of the Holy Spirit must be within the forms delineated by Scripture. That's just a a more complex way of saying the Word of God dominates everything we think, say, or do as believers, not our feelings and emotion. Okay? We must stress that the basis of our faith is neither experience nor emotion, but the truth as God has given it, verbalized in propositional form, in the scriptures, and which we first of all, first of all, apprehend with our minds, though of course the whole man must act upon it. So he's not writing off emotions or affections and feelings, but he's saying first and foremost, things come through the mind. You've got to cognitively understand that the the evangelistic course that Mary and I developed, the Chronicles of Redemption, works off the basis two bases. Basically, that the Word of God can teach and train a conscience. The conscience can be educated. Secondly, it's objective. It's outside of people because it's all based on the Word of God. So important. And and we promote the Chronicles of Redemption because what it's doing in a postmodern age, it's, it's, it's It's laying down the propositional truth of God's word, which is objective outside of the person. And he's saying something. People need to hear that God speaks. Proverbs 23, 7 gives the illustration of a guest that's been invited to a dinner. And the one writing the proverb says, beware and be careful when you take up the food to eat and realize that that host is a selfish man. And if he is a selfish man, because even though he may say, eat, eat, it's not what he feels in his heart. And we get that phrase then, as a man thinks within him, so he is. Because the one writing the proverb wanted the person to realize it doesn't matter what a person says, it's what's in his heart. That's who he really is. It's important. The mind is important. Hence the need of a guard for the heart and the mind. Jonathan Edwards declared, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. What you think is who you are. 
What do you think about when you're all by yourself? Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Our weapons and our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. How do you speculate? You don't speculate with your feelings. You speculate in your mind. We are destroying speculations and every lofty lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are what? Taking every what? Thought. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. (laughs) Told you it was radical. This is like, ouch. Ouch. Paul lays out six virtues that he commands the believers to have fill their minds. A mind filled with these virtues will enjoy the peace of God, according to 4.9, and enjoy the presence of the God of peace in their life. And make no mistake about it, there is no enduring change in life, there is no meaningful, Christ-exalting, sin-killing sanctification apart from a transformation in how we think. Our minds really matter, people. So let's look at these six areas. Well, wait, one more thing, okay? Because these two verses are kind of governed by two uh, admonitions or two imperatives. It's not just this is the way you should think or ponder. It's also practice. Both of those are imperatives. Those six virtues are to be pondered and then they are to lead to our practice or the way we live. So it's not just up in our mind. It actually comes out through the members of our body. It's important to keep that in mind. And this is a worldview matter. This is the way we should be as Christians. I mean, so many people claim to be Christians and you look at their lives and you go, huh? It's a worldview matter. It's moment by moment Christianity lived out, seen by the comprehensiveness of this kind of thinking. That's why Paul put before each of these six um, virtues, he said, whatever is. So it's broad, it's general. He's not being real specific, whatever is. So the first one, whatever is true, the first virtue, whatever is true, alatheis, not hidden, not concealed, it's sincere, things that are dependable. It's the real rather than the apparent, true things. Now truth, you know, has fallen on hard times in our culture. It's what conforms to objective reality. But people will tell us everywhere, I have my truth. You have your truth. She has her truth. They have their truth. There is no absolute truth. And you can't say of another's truth, that's not true. Why? Because it's subjective. See? See how this works? This is, this is from the pit of hell. This thinking is just promoted by the devil. <laughs> I know I sound like an old Baptist preacher in a tent, but I can't help it. That's exactly what it is. It's bad stuff, man. And it's, it's promoted as so hip and so cool. But just think what it does to Christianity and the objective truth of God's word. You see, to say of another person, what you're saying is just patently not true. Okay? You were born a man. You can't be a woman. I'm sorry to tell you this, buddy. Okay? 
I could go to jail for that, and that's fine. But to say that would be the most grievous affront to the personhood of the one holding their truth. No longer can there be such a thing as right and wrong then. There is no right and wrong. There cannot be. But rather, there's an ever-extending sliding scale of truthiness, which depends on the individual as a sole arbiter of what is true to them, and we cannot question it. So that's where courage comes in. Okay? That's where courage comes in, because we need to confront people that are deceived in thinking that what they're believing is true when it's absolutely not. We need to take them to the truth, the objective truth of God's word, and point out that's not true. In the beginning, God created them, male and female. Created he them. Alan Bloom wrote a book years ago called The Closing of the American Mind. And he said this there, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely sure of now, Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. That's way before postmodernity just hit us like a, a train. But there is truth. And if men wish to cover their eyes and declare they're invisible, like children do, it matters little when reality remains. The scriptures teach us that the word of God is truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Its precepts and its principles conform to objective reality because God is the source of truth. So whatever is true, ponder, meditate, think on that. Secondly, whatever is honorable, not what is base or vulgar, whatever is honorable, this word Honorable. It means honest and noble, reverend, august. It, it goes into nuances of seriousness and gravity. 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about aged men need to be honorable. Lofty, sublime, majestic things rather than crude and vulgar and trivial things. It's the exact opposite of all that is trivial, trite, and frivolous. Gravitas, not levity. These are the things that lead us into lofty ideals in speech and behavior and even outward displays such as the way that we dress and activities that we participate in. To have this mindset about us, whatever is honorable. Ever been around a person that lifts you to a higher degree of dignity? I think of one, his name is Mel Wyma. I believe he's with the Lord now. He was a missionary statesman. And you, you get around Mel, and you just, you felt small, but somehow or other, he pulled you up too. Do you, do you know anybody? You ever been around somebody like that? You surely didn't crack jokes. No dad jokes around Mel. Mm -mm -mm, right? It, it just was so unseemly, you would never even think of doing something like that when Mel was around. That's honorable. That's, that's the idea of, Honorable. Their very presence, atmosphere becomes more serious and dignified. Such is an honorable person. Romans 2 7 tells us to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. So, one of the ways that we can be honorable is seeking to do good. 
John 12, 26 says, whoever serves me must follow me, Jesus speaking, and where I am, my servant also will be, and my Father will honor him. You want to be honorable? Follow Jesus. These things are simple, but they're hard. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So whatever is true, whatever is honorable, ponder on these things. Number three, whatever is right, not thinking on what is wrong or what's distorted. What is right? Dikaios, just, innocent, faultless, character in sync with conduct, righteousness, conformed to God. One man said it like this, not making our, our decisions on the basis of what is expedient or convenient or what provides us with the most immediate gratification, but, contrast, but asking of every decision we make along the journey of life, what is the right thing to do? Is it right? That's always the very first question you may ask. What's helpful? And what's meaningful? And what's experientially gratifying? That's fine. But only after you've asked the question, what is the right thing to do? Can you see how this would govern our lives? These truths, these six virtues, they govern the life of a Christian. When I think of this, I think of Daniel and his three friends. Um, I love the book of Daniel. All three of them evidenced a thoroughly developed sense of right about them. The three, when they were confronted with the choice to worship falsely or be thrown into the fire, they said, quote, we really don't even need to give you an answer about this. We don't. If it has to be so, then God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, they had the bases covered. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why? Because it just isn't right. It's wrong. See how that works? And Daniel, when the decree went out not to make petition to any god or man besides King Darius, Daniel entered his house, opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God as he had been doing previously. He didn't do that to tweak the Chaldeans. He just continued on with what he was doing because it was right. And he is confronted on that, wasn't he? And he met some kitty cats. At least they acted like kitty cats to him purring when he was thrown into the den of lions. Think on these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Oh my, not on what is dirty or sleazy. Hagnas, free from fault, immaculate, uncontaminated. From the same root was Hagias, holy. If ever there is a time to think on that which is pure, we are assailed every day by hundreds of impure images and thoughts introduced by what we read and listen to. I told Mary the other day, I said, even on my Fox feed, when I do go and look on Fox News, I've got girls in, in underwear along my side column. She said, I don't have any of that. I said, you're not a man. You're not a man. It, this is just sick. It's everywhere. Don't go to a checkout 
in a grocery store, or if you do, don't look at the magazines as you're going through the checkout line. My gosh. Everywhere, right? Job made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't look on a young virgin. Okay? We need to make a covenant with our minds, with our minds, people, to think on whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, not on the ugly or unbecoming. Lovely, prosphilas, pleasing, agreeable. It's compound word pros, which means toward, and phileo, which means love, toward love. Now, this is a word not found anywhere else in the scripture. And it means that that which calls forth love from us, it is love-inspiring. It represents all that is pleasing and agreeable and pleasant. Think on that. That which is lovely, it gives pleasure to all who come into contact with this virtue, and it causes a distaste or repulsion to nobody. It's good to think on things that are lovely. This loveliness is attractive like catching a most delightful scent. You ever done that when you've been walking? I don't know if you hike in the woods or walk in the woods, especially at dusk, and there's these scents that come as it gets cooler. There's a scent that comes and you just go, oh, whoa, and then you go back and try and find it. You can't find it, it's really hard, right? This, that's a lovely scent, right? A lovely scent. It, it, it's delightful. It delights you. Think on pleasant things, the true and the honorable, the right, the pure, and the lovely. And finally, the sixth virtue, whatever is reputable. Not on the dishonest. This is another word that's only used here in the New Testament, just this one time. And it represents that which is well-spoken of that which is appealing and attractive. It is used to express that which is kind and, and likely to win other people to your side. And it avoids what may be offensive, whatever is reputable. Think on these things. The true, the honorable, the right, the pure, the lovely, and the reputable. Summarizing those six he goes on at the very end of the verse. He says, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, here's the command, dwell on these things. And he means all of them. But those last two are kind of a summary statement. The call of the apostles for the Philippians to focus their minds on and make a plan to act in accordance with whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, which could be summed up by the six virtues that he just listed. Excellence is a biblical word which means it depicts something is doing what it was created to do. Um, a knife is an excellent knife when it's sharp and it cuts because <laughs> that's what knives are supposed to do. Not in our house. We don't have excellent knives. <laughs> but that's what excellence is, right? A racing horse, when he races, he is excellent because that's what he's about. So people who have created to glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever, and when a person does so, they are excellent people. Do you glorify God? Are you enjoying Him? Because that's your purpose, human being. And too many settle for mediocrity when God created us for excellence. We should strive for that excellence. 
And praiseworthy, that's an old word, sadly old concept that's lost a lot of traction in culture today. It simply means anything that engenders the affection and admiration of others. It's praiseworthy, even those outside the church. I'd say that John Waters had some praiseworthiness going on yesterday as he played Coop. And Glenn Larson, too. Glenn Larson was knocking like three of the things over at one time. How is that possible? I, it's a game, okay? It's a lawn game, and we're at Beacon of Hope, and these guys were excelling and showing their prowess. Direct your attention and energy and action towards such things. Give these values and virtues weight in your decision-making, and take these things into account in the evaluation of how you will live and spend money and raise your kids and what you watch on TV. <gasps> Told you this is convicting. One man summed up these things by asking this question to be seriously considered. If you had a filter or a mechanism of some sort that you could automatically apply to your iPad, your laptop, and your cell phone, and the books that you read, and the websites that you visit, and the video games that you play, and the places you go, and what you see, and what you hear, that only permitted things that reflect and are consistent with these eight virtues that I just talked about, how much would be left for your intake? I quoted that because it just slammed me, okay? I haven't said it for a long time, but it's really true. When I'm talking to you, there's three fingers coming right back at me. Beloved, look out for the world. It is monolithic. It wants to conform us to itself and its way of thinking. When you, by an act of your will, through intentional pursuance, fill your mind with the virtues that we've just reviewed, you will, in effect, be shutting out the intense pressure of the world around you. And everything that fights for your attention, and it does fight for our attention, you will be able to use those virtues as a spot check for everything. I want to show you how to apply this now into your life, okay? How about on areas that are gray, you know, the gray areas, the questionable areas, Romans 14, right? The question areas, how to decide on the gray areas? Well, ask yourself, is it right? Is what this gray area that I'm wanting to do, is it right? Is it praiseworthy? You use it as a, a filter. This is very helpful. How about deciding on relationships? Is that relationship honorable? Is it right, according to God's word? Is it something that's admirable, of good repute? Is it pure? How about deciding behaviors? Is your behavior true? Is it honorable? Is it lovely? Deciding where your time is spent and, and on what you'll spend your money. Well, when you spend your money, is it honorable? Is it praiseworthy? I mean, look at how practical this is. And see, if we cultivate this then, I'll tell you what, it's like a jump start on your Christian experience. You will be living differently. You'll be thinking differently, and then therefore, you'll be living differently. Just think of it. We actually do have that filter, that mechanism, 
to help us discern what we allow ourselves to think. That, that's why Proverbs 4.23 is so very, very, very important, right? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And the heart doesn't mean emotion or feelings. In the Old Testament, leb, it, it means the control center where all your thinking and thoughts and imaginations take place, where your volition takes place, comes out of the heart. It's the control center of the life. For a great study and devotions, you that like to study deep, okay, there's a book called Keeping the Heart. Keeping the Heart, it's by John Flavel, and I'm going to give you a really, really bit of good news. It's free. It's free. It's in a PDF format. Download it, type it out, and use it for devotions. You find it at preachtheword.com. All you got to do is type in uh, keeping the heart, preachtheword.com, you'll find it. You want some devotions that will really rock your world, read that. Well, those are all the things we're to ponder. But I'm so grateful that Paul doesn't leave it with just in our minds. He goes on and he says, practice these things, verse 9. Practice these things. He's so balanced, as the Word of God is always balanced, but Paul's so balanced, always. While it's true that the key to the Christian life and personal holiness begins in the mind, the Christian life is lived. It's not a head thing. It's not just philosophy. It's not enough to ponder. We need to practice. And verse 9 is actually subordinate to verse 8. It's not an addition. It's subordinate to it. And it can be seen as a natural outworking of pondering. When you ponder these things, you will practice the very lifestyle that Paul lived out before the Philippians. Paul now stresses the need for the Philippian believers to put into practice everything they personally witnessed Paul doing. Let's such a per- I mean, this is not new, because in Philippians chapter, uh, or well, he does, he does talk about it in Philippians 3.17. He says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He also said in 2 Corinthians 10, let such a person consider, ponder, this, that what we are in word and letter, when absent, we also are in deed when present. So you got both parts. He'll write his epistles and they were accusing him of being really strong in his epistles, but weak when he comes to them. He says, uh-uh, not even close. What I say is what I do. That's beautiful. So what was learned and received? Well, Paul's teaching, for one. The whole idea of following examples was mentioned in 3.17, like I mentioned. And Paul used the two verbs in the first clause, which are aorist indicatives. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that they, he was calling them to consider what they already knew because he taught them. He was with them. And he's saying, you have learned and received these things. He depended on the previously spoken word in his teaching as well as his living example, both of which the Philippians would recall from Paul's time with them. I often think of the Taliabo. You know, I warned them a lot. And uh, after we preached the gospel with them, we taught for seven years. 
raising up man leaders and so forth. And during that time, I really, really challenged them and warned them about uh, lumber companies coming into their area. They're very primitive, but I know how Indonesia was working and lumber companies would come into an area and they'd take their young girls and they'd run off with their young girls. They'd introduce alcohol and all sorts of riotous living. And so I was warning them all about that. Well, years after we left, the lumber companies did come in. But you know what? Because of the word of God and because God raised me up to go over there, I warned them about that and a lot of them escaped a lot of that problem. That's all Paul's doing here. He's just helping them. Remember what I taught you. And receive, the word used here is a semi-technical word. And it's kind of interesting because we think received. Well, he taught them and so they listened to his teaching and they received it. It's more than that. The word actually is... Uh, goes back to traditions of the early Christian life uh, in first century. We realize that Christianity took over from rabbinic Judaism and they used a method of transmission of life principles through passing on tradition. Okay? Now that wasn't holy writ. It wasn't, it's pre-canonical of the New Testament. But they did talk about traditions. These are the ways that you should live. In the Sayings of the Fathers, which is a work that was written, it was relayed, quote, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and delivered it to Joshua, and Joshua delivered it to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets delivered it to the men of the great synagogue. Traditions passed down. Of course, pre-canon, the truth was transmitted by tradition, oral tradition, much of it. 1 Corinthians 11.23, what did Paul teach the Corinthians? He said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. He's passing down a tradition. Now that is holy writ, so it's canonical. We also read, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. One of the hottest books, number one seller during the first century was the Didache. The Didache. It was primarily a text delineated the teaching of the apostles and it, was, it wasn't scripture. The first line of this treatise was the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the 12 apostles. And it taught the virtuous way of life and the wicked way of death. It was kind of like a catechism for believers at that time. You know, we've got traditions here already. It's amazing how churches develop traditions. We say that we've been saved to serve. serve. I mean, that's a tradition that's been passed down just orally to you guys. And we are a beacon of hope. This church is a beacon of hope, right? We also talk about our target demographic, which is the lost and the found. The lost and the found. And that came about by one of my men that was kind of overseeing me when we were first planting this church. He says, what's your demographic? Are you going for the 20-somethings? I said, hardly. I'm like an old man. He says, well, are you going for, you know, the suburban people? I said, no. He kept on laying out all these things, you know, that I should go for. And I said, you know, actually, I think our demographic would be the lost and the found. We want them all. We want them all. 
The lost, we want to lead to Christ and saving knowledge of him. And the found, we want to encourage them and strengthen them as they go on. It's important. Traditions are important, aren't they? You know, it's good to know older Christians, and we have some here. We lost one of the most dear, okay? Grandma Edna. Man, you sit down and talk to Grandma Edna, and you ask her about her life. Her and her husband were, were missionaries. They had a full-orbed life. And Edna was not afraid to share those things with you. It's good to ply older Christians with requests to tell you their stories, the things that they've learned and, and how the Lord has met them all along the way. And, and this is not direct teaching from the Word of God, but it is incredibly effective in helping you along your journey, your way. We don't do that much anymore. Old people are kind of like, you know, put them off to the side. Oh, man, what a waste, what a loss. We used to sit at the feet, literally, sit at the feet of missionaries when we were going through training. These were people that came back from the mission field. One guy was on the Bataan March in the Philippines. He was a China Inland missionary. Clarence Preeti, a little sawed-off guy. And just such a testimony. And he talked about the communists and how he wasn't afraid of the communists when he was in prison under them. He said, because I knew, I knew that God is over us. And he looked at them as bugs. And if he wanted to stamp them out, he could. And he'd always bounce on his... Loved it, man. You... Those words steadied me when I was in Indonesia. Had another man say, when we preached to the tribal people in Brazil, Pacasnovis, he says, when we preached to the tribal people and it came time to build the church, they wanted us to build a church. We said, absolutely not. And they called us stingy, selfish missionaries. And they wanted to get nails from us, and we sold them to them. And they called us selfish and stingy missionaries. He said, but I tell you, when that church was up, they dedicated it on the Sunday, they dedicated it, they all marched around the church going, our church is a new church. The new church is our church. Never forgot that. It's powerful stuff. We lose by not talking to our older saints about the lives that they had, the traditions that come. And what was heard and seen, Paul's example, primarily Paul referred to his teaching ministry among the believers there, and he reminds them that the practice of what they had heard and seen, and had they heard and seen anything in Paul? Do you remember Acts 16 when he was arrested, him and Silas, and thrown into the innermost part of the prison and put in shackles? And what did they do? At midnight, they sat and sang praises. You think that, didn't, that wasn't part of the traditions of the Philippian church? He's saying, remember these things and then act like that. He says at the very end of verse 9, because when you do that, you practice. There's the verb, that's the imperative. When you practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And he is a God of peace. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. The God of peace. So you have the peace of God given to us by the God of peace. 
It's implied by this verse that Paul lived in the constant awareness. Remember I said that the verb tenses are present, so that means continuously. He, he lived in the constant awareness that the God of peace was with him, was with him. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. I think it's good to remind you once again that the context in which these two small little verses were written is a context of where Paul rebuked Iodia and Syntyche because they were living in disharmony. Brothers and sisters, if we live like this and apply these principles, these, these six virtues, or eight if you want to count those last two, if we live and cultivate those, we will not have disharmony. We will be powerful as a church. And that's what my prayer is for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so very, very much for all that you have done in the midst of Beacon of Hope and all that you will do and continue to do. Father, we thank you and we just uh, put it all laid on you, as the song said. In Jesus' name, amen.